Good morning and welcome to Renovation Baptist Church today. Because uh, I know only the Baptists would come out on a day like today. Um, reminiscent of October for me. I thought maybe John and Ashley were getting married again. But maybe not. Maybe not. Now welcome. Good to have you here at Renovation Vineyard Church this morning. Um, it's a nice place to be. Uh, secure, safe, dry place to be. So, you're welcome. Alpha began this past uh, Wednesday night, and you can still join Alpha if you want to for this week or next week or even, even the following week. But we would love to have you show up this week. If you, if you think that might be something you would like to do and you missed it this past week, <clears throat> Why don't you go over here and see Andy Griggs right there raising his hand. He'd love to uh, take your information down so that we'll have food for you this week. Starts at 6 o'clock. Show up promptly. If you were here last week, bring somebody with you. Bring somebody with you. You, you thought we were full last week. We've got plenty of room. We've got plenty of extra leaders in the wings that are ready to come in and take, uh, take groups. So... Let us know. We, we do need to know that you're coming so that we can have food prepared, but other than that, come on. Child care is available as well if you let us know. So welcome. We're starting a brand new series today. Um, I don't know how many parts it will have. I thought it was going to be seven, but it's going to be more than seven, so we may divide it into a couple of uh, series. It's called... Are you for real? That seems to be something that people say these days. Are you for real? <laughs> and we're looking at the book, the letter uh, of John to the churches in Asia Minor. His first letter. So it's called 1 John or 1 John if you uh, are from Europe. And today we're going to do just the introduction part of this, kind of a, a smattering from all the different chapters in 1 John so you can get a flavor of what it's like. And then next week we'll begin to drill down into 1 John and see what he has to tell the churches in Asia Minor and us today because I think he's speaking to us today. You know what? I have seen the future. I've seen the future. And it works. It does. I've seen the future, people. And it works. That was the excitement that this fellow named Lincoln Steffens had, American journalist who had come back from a recent visit to the newly formed Soviet Union right after the Bolshevik Revolution in the early 1900s when Marxism had taken over. The aristocracy was gone. It was the People's Republic. Uh, the, the forms of government as they knew them were not existing anymore. It's a brand new world. And he says, it works. It works. Of course, history revealed to us 
since then that Soviet Marxism does work, but only in some very certain small circumstances at the cost, enormous cost, I might say, enormous cost of human beings. It finally came crashing down, the Soviet Union experiment, in the late 1980s. Crashing down under its own dead weight, I might add. It became apparent that the Soviet system had been rotten and hollow on the inside. Perhaps even from the very beginning it was that way. But that sense that, that Lincoln Steffens had when he said, I have seen the future and it works. That glimpse of the future, that advanced display of the new world just waiting to be born out there, that's exactly the sense that the Apostle John has, and he wants to show us in this short, very short, concise letter that he wrote to those churches in Asia Minor. Now, you need to understand that there were some false teachings going on at the time, teachings that didn't line up with what Jesus had taught John and the other disciples. And you need to understand Two, that the, the number one thing that Jesus taught about during his whole time here on earth was something that he called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is near, he said. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Well, this term kingdom of God wasn't something new. The term kingdom of God was something that the Jewish people were familiar with as they discussed history, what history would be like. You see, in the Jewish interpretation of history, there was this time, we'll call it the present, that we live in right now. It began with, well, it began at the beginning of time, Genesis. It began there, still going on, we're in it, and at some point, Messiah will come. Boom! And this present age will end. And the age to come will begin. And it'll go on forever. The transition point is the Messiah. Now Jesus kind of uh, um, looked at that teaching and thought, well, here's these Jewish leaders. They're teaching about the present age and this age to come. And... And this age to, uh, this, this present age, I should say, is filled with things like misery, suffering, sickness, death, cancer, accidents, oppression, injustice, all those things. But there was this age to come that they were talking about where, where God would come and sort all that stuff out. We wouldn't have to worry about it. He's going to take care of it. And God would make everything right. He would put everything in the order that it's supposed to be. And God would rescue us, his people, the Jewish people, from the evil that we had suffered all this time since the beginning of time. But John says, now, 
He's quoting Jesus. Now, now, now is the time that God has provided an advanced display of this future that's going to happen, this age to come. And God himself, John says, has, has kept this under wraps, waiting to reveal it at just the right moment in time. But the secret at the heart of the early Christian movement was this. They knew. They knew that the age to come had already come. It was already here. And that was Jesus' change on the teaching. The, the second little diagram that you have there in your handout will kind of lay that out. I'm not going to go through it because it's a little more time-consuming than we have time for here today, but if you have a question about it, you can ask me after the service or Andy after the service or Jay after the service. We'll be happy to answer those. Essentially what it said, though, was, yeah, there's this present age, this present age that's over here, and yes, the present age is going to end when the Messiah comes, as we know it today. When Messiah comes, things will change a little bit. The Messiah is going to usher in the beginning of the age to come. There's an overlap, you see. Boom, here and there. There's a time that we live in right now between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' return that we look forward to. There's a time right here that we live in today. And during this time, we have suffering. We have sorrow. We have grief. We have tears. We have crap that happens in our lives every day. We all suffer it. But when Jesus comes again, we won't have to worry about that anymore because the age to come will be perfect. No more sorrow. No more tears. No more mourning. It's a great time. But in the time being, from the first coming to the second coming, we have to put up with this stuff, this present time. When Jesus came, he said, the kingdom of God is near. And what he meant is this future time has burst into the present time. He came and brought it. He ushered it into our everyday lives. The present time was not ready for the future, though. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to accept it. And the word that John chose for this future, the future time, you'll see it all through this letter, is the word life, L-I-F-E. Life. Life. Life as it was meant to be. Life to the full. Life which death tried to corrupt and tried to kill. Life which had overcome death. And now a life that was offered to anyone and everyone who wanted to come and take it. It was there for all of us. Life itself. Jesus himself had come to life, had taken the form of a human being, 
had come into the present, coming from the future, coming to display God's age to come. Show us what it's like. And we just have a glimpse once in a while of what that can be like. There are times here in this church that we pray for folks who are sick. And they're healed. They're, they're healed right here. I mean, I've, heard, I've read it in books and I've, I've seen it on TV, but we've seen it happen right here with people we know. It happens. The future has come to the present. That was Jesus. The very idea of God's new life becoming a person and stepping out of the future into the present is so enormous, so breathtaking, that it evokes a sense of awe and wonder and reverence and reflection. And as we come into... I don't know what your backgrounds are, but as we come into a period of time in the church that's known as the Lenten season, it's a time for us to reflect, to reflect what God has done, who he is, what he has done. And that's exactly what we find in the opening verses of 1 John, verses 1 through 4. If you have your Bibles, get them out. We're going to have some scripture on the screen. There are Bibles up here at the front if you don't have one that you're welcome to come and take. I'm going to be reading to you from a different version. It's called the Kingdom New Testament. It's written by the Bishop of Durham, an Anglican bishop that I've come to really like. Really, I, I like his commentaries. I like his writings. He's a Kingdom of God person. He's the kind of person that we would run into with, with the Alpha course. And he writes in contemporary language that we can all understand. This is what he said. Hey, in this church we believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God. It's the only rule for our faith and for our life. Even this version right here. So listen as I read from God's Word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes. Can't you see the people reading this letter saying, with your own eyes? You saw this with your own eyes? And John would say, yes. That which we have gazed at. You mean you didn't just get a glimpse? You actually were there and you were able to stare? Yes, John would say. And our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Wait now. John, you say that your hands have actually touched him? You've touched him? Your hands? You touched the life? You touch the one that we're talking about, the one that we honor, the one that we praise, the one that we worship? And John said, yes, yes. That life was displayed, and we have seen him and bear witness, and we announce to you the life of God's coming age, which was with the Father 
and was displayed to us. That which we have seen and heard, we announce to you too, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus the Messiah. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What's John saying there? What is he saying? He's saying, we heard, we, we saw, we touched this from the beginning of time life. We knew him. We were his friends. In fact, we are still his friends. And here's the big idea. We haven't done one of these in a while, but I thought I'd bring it back. The big idea for today is once the future has come into the present, the present is transformed forever. Once the future has come into the present, the present is transformed forever. I think I've said that in different ways to you before. I've said it's impossible absolutely impossible for you to have an encounter with Jesus Christ and not be changed. If you've had a real encounter with Jesus, you're a different person. And if you're not a different person, I'd question whether or not you had the encounter at all. We change when we're in his presence. So unlike Lincoln Steffens, John is saying in, the, in this first letter that he writes, we've seen the future, and the future is full of light and life and joy and hope. And John wants you and he wants me to have absolute 100% confidence in regard to the question of our eternal life. He wants us to know. And this is the theme that runs throughout this first letter. We find it in 1 John 5, 13. John says, I write these things to you. He's talking to the churches, but he's really talking to us as well. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you... So that you, sitting here today, on this rainy Sunday, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, that's all well and good, John, but as the old commercial used to say, where's the beef? Where's the beef? What's the evidence? What's the evidence of what you're writing here? So let's take a look at four elements that reveal what true saving faith is and how you can know. I know that I have eternal life if, first of all, I've confessed my sin to God. I know it if I've confessed my sin to God. Almost every week when I go to this table at the close of the service, I use this verse from 1 John 1, 8 through 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, if we 
talk to God about what our sins are, agree with Him that we have made mistakes, He is faithful, always faithful, and always just, and He's going to forgive everything that we've done. And He's going to purify us, it says. means to restore a relationship with Him. The relationship when we sin is broken. And this restores that relationship. So, how do I confess my sins? Well, by simply saying the little prayer that we say around here so often. You can pray it with me right now. Matter of fact, why don't you close your eyes, bow your heads. That's a churchy thing to do. Let's do that. Close your eyes, bow your heads. And in your heart, repeat after me. God, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the things that I have done that I know I should not have done. And as you think that phrase, there are things that begin to pop into your mind. So just agree with him that yes, yes, I did that. Yes, I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for that. And God, I'm also sorry for the things that you have commanded me to do, but I haven't done. I was too busy. I had other priorities. My family came in the way. The church came in the way. My work came in the way. And I'm sorry I didn't do those things. And you're thinking about those also right now. Agree with him about those things. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for coming to this earth from the future into the present. For paying the penalty for my sins, for these things I've done wrong. And for purchasing for me a place in heaven. And please come. Please come, Holy Spirit. Come. Come and fill this place. Come and fill me from the top of my head to the soles of my feet with your power. Because I can't do this on my own. Every time I've tried, I've messed up. I need you, Holy Spirit. Come. Come just now and fill me. In Jesus' name, amen. Simple, huh? Simple. And if you prayed that prayer, or you've prayed that prayer before, or something with similar words to that, John says you can know with confidence that your sins have been forgiven. You can know it. One of the questions that we get on the Alpha Course frequently is, how can I know that I've been forgiven? Because John says here, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's how. You see, we confess and God forgives. That's the way it works. It's a promise and it works every time. That's good news, I think. I know that I have eternal life if I have confessed my sin to God. And I know I have eternal life if I obey God's commands. If I obey God's commands. 
1 John 2, 3 says, If we obey God's commands, then we are sure that we know him. We're sure that we know him. What does that mean, that we know him? That we have a relationship with him. That we belong to him. That he loves us and we love him. And chapter 5, verse 18 says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Now, this one may give you a little heartburn. In this first letter, John emphasizes that the real Christ follower lives a life of obedience. Obedience to the commands of God, to the commands of Jesus. (laughs) And I know what you're thinking because I thought it for years. So does that mean I have to be perfect? No sin at all in my life? Well, I think John had had that question himself. Because in 1 John 1, 8, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. We are sinners. We, we will sin even after we've become real Christ followers. It's going to happen. And we're going to have to ask for forgiveness again. I mean, we're humans. We make mistakes. The issue isn't perfect obedience. The issue is the desire to obey God's commands. Perfection is never going to come this side of heaven. So don't expect it. But if you live with this desire to be obedient to God, that's a good sign that you're already a real, true Christ follower. However, if you have no desire to obey the commands of God, you have no desire to live a righteous life, you have no conviction by the Holy Spirit when you do sin, I think you should question whether or not you have truly given your life to Jesus. I mean truly. Holy, completely, with every ounce of your being. If you have questions, we're going to have prayer teams up here at the front afterwards. Come and talk to them. They'd love to talk with you about that. They know. They can walk you through that. I know that I have eternal life if I confess my sins to God, if I obey God's commands. And thirdly, If I believe that Jesus Christ came to earth 2,000 years ago as God in human flesh. That's what we just celebrated back in December, remember? God came to earth as a human. The baby Jesus. That's what we celebrate. 1 John 5, 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, some translations say that Jesus is the Messiah, is born of God. I demonstrate true evidence of my salvation, of my belief in eternal life, through my faith that Jesus, and Jesus alone, is, as John says, the only true God. There is no other God. He's the true living 
God. He's not just one of the true living gods. He is the true living God who came and walked among us. In John's gospel, uh, in the first chapter as he begins, he says, in the beginning was the Word, meaning Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then we skip down to verse 14. And I love the message paraphrase here. It says, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Right here among us. Right here among us. Jesus became one of us. If he had been anything else, we wouldn't have believed it. We have enough trouble believing it as it is. And I've got to believe that Jesus was the only one who could die in my place and pay the penalty for, for my sins. I can't even pay the penalty for my sins. I need a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I've got to believe also that He is the only way to heaven. John 14, 6, Jesus Himself says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. You either believe that, or you can probably throw this book out. Because if we start taking out little pieces that we don't like, we're going to end up with nothing. It'll be as hollow as the Soviet Union. Jesus is the only way to heaven. I know that I have eternal life if I have confessed my sin to God, if I obey God's commands, if I believe that Jesus Christ came to earth 2,000 years ago as God in human flesh, and if I love other Christ followers. If I love other Christ followers. 1 John 3.10 says, Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. And brother there is talking about fellow Christ followers. So what kind of action demonstrates the state of my belief in my eternal life? John, 1 John 4, 7 says this, Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And verse 9 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. So how do we show this love to other people? Well, we, we make sacrifices. We ourselves make sacrifices to help other believers in their times of need. And, and when we help other people, we do it with no strings attached. Quid pro quo. We don't want anything in return for it. Nothing in return for it. We want it to be, you know, I love you, I'm going to do this for you. By the way, that's the number one way that if you have a Muslim friend, you can win them over. 
not quoting scripture to them and not preaching at them and not you know, saying how stupid this is. You know. Do random acts of kindness for them. It'll drive them crazy. Because they can't understand somebody that would love them like that. Love's not part of their language, part of their dictionary. If they're in need of money, you just give them money. And do it wisely. That's the last resort for me if somebody comes in here needing something. Do it wisely. If they're in need of clothing, hey, give them the shirt off your back. If they're in need of gas, take them to the corner gas station and fill up their tank. Usually when someone comes here, they say, can you give me enough gas to get to Columbia or something? And I'll take them over to the service station here and fill it all the way up. They weren't expecting to have it filled up. They were expecting, you know, $5 worth of gas or something. I never give them the money for the gas. I take them there and do it myself. If they're in need of food, feed them. Take them to Bojangles. <laughs> you can't take them to Big E's, but you could take them to Chris's over here. You can take them, take them to a restaurant and buy them something to eat. This isn't some sort of Christian welfare system that I'm talking about here because Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that everyone who can work must work. If you can work, you've got to do your part. But when something happens in the, in the life of, a, of another Christ follower, they lose their job, they injure themselves at work, their health makes it impossible for them to work, whatever it might be. We who are brothers and sisters in Christ are to come to their aid. That's what we're about. When we help other Christ followers in their time of need, we are demonstrating that we are real children of God, real Christ followers ourselves. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, I don't want you to go away hearing that last little bit and think that I'm some type of uh, good works-oriented legalistic pastor because I'm not. Lest you think otherwise, I would say that I do believe with all my heart in Ephesians 2 8 and 9, which says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, not by anything you do. It's a free gift from God. That eternal life. But I also believe James, when James says, Faith without works is dead. You've got to work out your, your, uh, your faith. So when I ask, are you for real? I'm asking about all these questions. The real Christ follower is the person who, who has faith that leads to action. And he's the person whose action 
is motivated by his faith. It's kind of circuitous. C.S. Lewis says, The real Christian doesn't think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. That's why. Next week we're going to uh, take a little walk in the light. If you'd like to get ahead uh, in what we're doing, you could read verses 5 through 10 in chapter 1. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Never changing, ever true. I thank you, Lord, for the words that John penned, every last one of them, that he wrote for the churches in Asia Minor, that he wrote for us today, that impact our lives even as we read them. Simple words, simple words, simple deeds, simple actions to take if we'll only listen and obey. The hymn says, trust and obey because there's no other way. And that's so true. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for loving us before we ever thought about loving you. We thank you for bringing the future into the present, letting us see a glimpse every now and then of what the age to come will be like. Tasting. Tasting how sweet it can be. Thank you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.